Hello everybody and welcome to Kickback, your global anti-corruption podcast. Enjoy today's episode of this joint production of the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network and the Global Anti-Corruption Blog. You can subscribe to the show via Spotify, SoundCloud or iTunes. If you like what we do, leave us a rating at Apple Podcasts. If you want to get in touch with the show, follow us on Facebook or send an email to info at icrnetwork.org. That's info at icrnetwork.org. Greetings, everybody. Welcome to our newest episode of Kickback, the Global Anti-Corruption Podcast. I'm especially delighted today to be joined by Frederick Obermeier, who's the senior reporter and editor of the investigative unit at the German publication Zutdeutsche Zeitung. Did I get that almost right? Yeah, almost. Almost. How, what's the correct pronunciation of your organization? It's Süddeutsche Zeitung. It's an easy word, right? <laughs> Well, um, uh, Frederick uh, Obermeier is probably one of the most important and accomplished investigative journalists working on issues related to corruption, money laundering, financial crime, and associated issues today. He's probably uh, best known, you're probably best known for your work in helping to break the Panama Papers story, but of course that's not the only work that you've done. But I think that might be the best place to start. Now, at this point, you might be just sick of talking about the Panama Papers, but let's start there. I think most of our listeners are probably aware in general terms of, of what the Panama Papers were, but maybe it would be a good idea just to start with a brief version of the story, how you began working on that investigation, how it developed, and what the fallout has been. Well, the Panama Papers actually started with an um, electronic message that was sent to my colleague Bastian Obermeier, and here for the record, we are not brothers, we are not married. Um, pure coincidence. And this message uh, was sent by a person who called itself um, John Doe, asking us if we were interested in data. And of course, that's something, if you ask an investigative journalist if he's interested in data, of course you say yes. And when we got more details, we learned that the data uh, is internal data from a law firm in Panama, a law firm called Mossack Fonseca. And that's basically a law firm that was already known to some experts because there were rumors that they were involved in money laundering. There were rumors that they were involved in hiding um, money from um, Libya's Muammar al-Gaddafi. Um, so we were thrilled when we learned that there's someone offering us data from this law firm. And when we then received the first gigabytes, we pretty soon realized that this is a bombshell that we have in our hand because we saw names of prime ministers, among others, the prime minister uh, of Iceland in the data. We saw connections to uh, Mexican drug cartels, to organized crime groups in Ukraine, in Russia, and other parts of the world. And pretty soon we had a long list on the walls of our offices on a, on a whiteboard with links and hints leading um, to heads of states and heads of government all around the world. It was dozens of leads uh, that we followed. We then decided to share the data because we, in the end we had 2.6 terabyte of data. That's a lot, that's millions of documents. That was emails, Word documents, um, scans, PDFs. And we saw connections to all parts of the world, to scandals all around the world. And we realized if we are not sharing this, we are on the one hand side running a huge risk because 
if we start reporting, someone could try to stop us because we would not be able to report everything at once. Um, on the other hand side, we saw um, so many issues in there touched by the Panama Papers that are not that relevant for a German audience, to be honest, but that could be very important for, for example, an audience in Burkina Faso. Because unfortunately, our reporting on Africa uh, is not that good, not that extensive as it should be. So if we find a link to a corruption story uh, in Burkina Faso in the, in the Panama Papers, this would be like a very small article in our paper. But there it could change the whole country. So that's why we shared it with uh, the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, the ICIJ, and in the end worked with 400 journalists researching and digging into the data. Now, my understanding, I'm not a journalist myself, but my understanding is that this model that you followed with the Panama Papers investigation or cluster investigations, uh, though perhaps not unique, was a bit unusual, that usually journalists are kind of in competition with one another, that the idea that you would be sitting on a trove of really useful information and, and share it broadly and collaborate in this way uh, was, again, maybe not entirely unprecedented, but a bit unusual. Is that impression correct? Well, you're putting it in very nice diplomatic words. There were colleagues asking us if we are crazy, if we are crazy to uh, share a scoop with other uh, colleagues. But I think we are living in a time where we do see a change of mindset uh, among journalists. Like 10 or 20 years ago, the typical investigative journalist was this lonely wolf kind of existence. But we do see a change in this mindset. We do see a change towards the power of the pack. It is only logical to try to tackle transnational problems like corruption with a transnational team. By sharing the data, we had 400 experts in our team. When we had issues touching Iceland, we have had an, a colleague in Iceland whom we could call and ask for the details, ask for context, uh, who had their language skills, who knew the people to talk to. And that is, I think, was the recipe of, for making um, Panama Papers such an impactful um, investigation in the end. Now, has that that pattern or that model, or maybe I should say the infrastructure that, that was created or that was employed in the Panama Papers investigation, is that still in place? Was the Panama Papers process with that degree of collaboration sort of a, a one-off? Or do you think now that this model, moving from the lone wolf to the pack, as you put it, is really going to be a kind of standard model going forward, at least for these kinds of big stories that cross international boundaries that involve many different jurisdictions and so forth? Yes, I think it was... Panama Papers wasn't the first kind of this investigation. There was investigations on offshore leaks or the one called Swiss leaks that was basically on bank accounts of HSBC in Switzerland. But since the Panama Papers, there have been many other collaborations of this type. There was Paradise Papers after the Panama Papers. There was the Russian Laundromat. That was an investigation that was initiated by the OCCRP, the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Network. There was a huge investigation started um, by a newspaper called Berlinske. They started an investigation on corruption as well. We have quite recently seen the Troika laundromat investigation. So I think we are living in a time where the major investigations on corruption are mostly done by international teams and not by one media house alone. So another thing about the Panama Papers investigation that struck me as Again, not, not necessarily unique or unprecedented, but uh, maybe notably different from more traditional journalism, 
was the reliance on data and data analysis. As you said, you had, I think, over two terabytes worth of data, which uh, in layperson's term is a lot. And a lot of the analysis of that data, my understanding was, wasn't just doing keyword searches for names, but was that do, was doing more complicated analytical work on the data, and that some of this is, has continued. So, so um, again, is my impression correct that this is, again, not an unprecedented development, at least a, a new development, and how does that affect the way that investigative journalists working on issues of corruption do their work? Because there's what I think of as sort of traditional investigative journalism, which is cultivating sources, uh, getting to know people, interviews, digging through trash, whatever. But then there's this new version or, or new aspect to it that involves getting some smart computer people to write and run algorithms that scrape data for particular kinds of information, put together networks. And these seem like they're almost two different cultures that need to come together in this context. Can you talk a little bit about that aspect of the investigation? Yes. Um, I think this is a new model of doing journalism, but it, it is not replacing the old one. Still part of the Panama Papers was also going out, leaving your office, meeting uh, sources, meeting informants, uh, meeting sources that you have cultivated for years already. But we do see this part where it's getting more and more important to have the capabilities to analyze big amounts of data. Because I must admit, and this might sound stupid to some experts out there, but at the beginning, when we received the Panama Papers, my type of analysis was clicking through one email after another. And you can imagine how long this took and how fruitless in the end. Sometimes I stumble across new names, but this was not a very structured way of analyzing the data. And me and my colleague Bastian, we pretty soon realized that if we go on like this, this will be the story of our lifetime, but not in a good sense, in a bad sense rather, because it would take us till we are 60 years old to, uh, years old to get through the data. So we then, um, we needed advice. We consulted with experts and then pretty soon started a more structured way of analyzing the data. So we OCR'd the data. That basically means that, for example, the scanned documents in the, in the data were searchable by names, like you could basically Google it if you use the, the, the terms that we use in these times. And also we did like batch searches. So for example, we had long Excel spreadsheets where we had a list, if we speak about Germany, for example, all members of parliaments since World War II, all relevant um, individuals who are responsible for finances in the church, uh, in all political parties, um, individuals that were involved already in corruption um, cases in the past. And we basically threw these Excel spreadsheets against the data, and the result basically was where we started. Um, of course, there were a long of, list of false positives in there, but it was a start, and that's where we started now. And in the past year, since the Panama Papers, we learned to do better in this part, because I would say, retrospectively, we wasted about three or four months of time uh, during the Panama Papers by finding a way to deal with the data, uh, to really search it in a um, structured way, and in a way that basically hinders you from going to all... Uh, of sideways and losing track on the, on the main way. So one of the things I'm interested in regarding the Panama Papers and, and what came out of it is what surprised you? So obviously there are a bunch of individual names that we didn't know mm -hmm. that these people controlled these assets or were engaged in these kinds of transactions. But speaking a little bit more broadly and generally, at the back end of this process, 
Were there any things that you learned that you found genuinely surprising about the way this dark corner of our world works? Or is it more like you finally got confirmation in hard data form of activities and practices that you felt like we already all knew were there? I think everyone knew that there's corruption out there. Everyone knew knew that there's individuals out there who avoid or even evade taxes. So that's nothing new. But what the Panama Papers allowed us was basically uh, to have a look into the machine room of this whole corruption machine. Because we were able to see how the people who set up these companies, who administered them, how they created one layer of secrecy after another. Um, How they reacted towards new laws, for example. As soon as there was a new law in place, making their work more important, they found a new way to basically a new loophole to keep on their work. But of course, there was also parts in there that basically I could only like shake my head because I couldn't realize or I I was surprised how they dealt with it. For example, there was in this communication, we saw customers who only dealt with, were dealt with under fake names like Harry Potter or Winnie the Pooh. So you then had a conversation, an email chain like, did you already speak with um, Harry Potter about this issue? All the best, Winnie the Pooh. This was like crazy in my opinion because it was lawyers and very rich businessmen speaking in this kind of terminology. And they did so because they wanted to make sure that their name is not on any paper. In there. But that's rather a personal point of view. I was surprised to what extent the owners of the law firm, Mossack Fonseca, involved their own family in their business. So, for example, one of them used his father-in-law to basically create a new loophole because in this whole world of shell companies and intransparent company structures, you normally have this phrase, the ultimate beneficial owner. That's the one person that is in the middle of this whole matroshka um, construction. And as soon as some banks ask for the ultimate beneficial owner, they found a new way of dealing with it. That was the real ultimate beneficial owner. So if a bank asked for the ultimate beneficial owner, they would be able to present a person who pretends to be this ultimate beneficial owner. Um, And one of those guys who offered this service or pretended to be the ultimate beneficial owner was a relative of one of the owners. Um, I would guess that he was financing his retirement. You say one of of the owners of the law firm. That is one of the people who pretend to be an ultimate beneficial owner. Yeah, the relative of one of the owners. I see. I'm glad you brought up the issue of ultimate beneficial owners because that is a central issue in these debates. And as you know, uh, there are conversations right now about whether to what extent government should be collecting uh, and verifying information on ultimate beneficial owners. And then for those countries that are already collecting ultimate beneficial owner or so-called UBO data, there is a debate about whether that information should be made available generally through some kind of open public register. So in the United States, we're, we're well behind the international standards at this point. We're still debating whether to adopt a law that provides even a confidential register of UBO information. That's pending before the U.S. Congress right now. Many of us hope that this will finally be the year we get some progress on that. In many European jurisdictions, there's already a movement towards public UBO registers. The United Kingdom uh, led the way with, I think, the first public register back in 2016, at least the first register in a called major wealthy economy. And the European Union's fifth anti-money laundering directive is called for all EU member states to have such a register uh, by January 2020. So there's a debate about this, though. There are some critics who say that 
you should collect this information and make it available to law enforcement or in the context of a due diligence investigation, it's a bad idea to make the information freely accessible to the general public through mm. some kind of open register. Since you've worked a lot on these issues in your capacity as an investigative journalist, but also as somebody who thinks broadly about the policy issues, I was wondering if you have a view on the debate over whether it would be a good idea, a bad idea, or kind of doesn't really matter one way or the other to create a public register of beneficial ownership data. Actually, I have a very strong view on this issue because I think only a public beneficial ownership registry is useful. It would be naive to think that law enforcement alone, authorities alone, would be able to tackle corruption. If you speak with investigators, for example, in Germany, and if you visit them in their offices, you see huge stakes of paperwork and they will tell you how many cases they have to follow in parallel. I think we need the civil society, we need activists, we need organizations like Transparency International, Global Witness or the ICIJ um, or Greenpeace doing work in this field as well, double-checking what is in those registries, finding new leads that could then lead to investigations uh, in the end. So I think only a public uh, registry is a real measure to tackle corruption. It annoys me a little bit to hear all those arguments against it, because one of those arguments is always, uh, for example, in Germany, by businessmen, well, our families will be put in danger if this information is out in the public, because then the bad guys, the crooks, the criminals would know who we are, how much we own, and they would for example, kidnap our children. In my opinion, and sorry for my French, this is bullshit. Because if a person in Germany or in Europe or in Latin America is rich, you normally do see that they are rich because they drive big cars and they own big houses and they live in big houses. So you don't need a, such a registry to find out who is rich. Furthermore, these registries in most countries where they are already in place do not reveal anything about the amount of money people own put it in simple words. It is only who owns which company. And I think this is important in our economy. You need to know with whom you're doing business with. Speaking in broader global terms about sanctions, for example, the US currently is sanctioning individuals of Russia, of Iran, and other countries. How should a businessman make sure that he is not, by pure coincidence, breaching sanctions if he's not able to check on his own with whom he's doing uh, business with, to see who is the ultimate beneficial owner of a company he's doing business with. So that's one point um, that is very important to keep in mind. If we then speak about national security issues, I think it is very important also for the public to check with whom they are doing business with, for example, in in businesses that are relevant for national security. If you speak about critical infrastructure, I do want to know who is running the critical IT infrastructure in the United States, in Germany, in Europe. I do want to know if there's a connection to Russia, to China, to the US. And that's something public beneficial ownership registries would enable me as a citizen, and especially as an investigative journalist, to double check. That last point is important because one of the things that we want to know is whether people are engaged in criminal activities. But it sounds like, and correct me if I'm misunderstanding, there's also, you would argue, an interest in knowing this information even if there's not a serious allegation of criminality. It's just important to know who owns what. Yeah, I think it's 
important for our economy to know with whom you're doing business. And it is also important, in my opinion, for politics to know which individuals of which origin are doing business with businessmen or companies in your own country. Speaking about the US, I, for example, think that it's here you have the best example of why it is important to know who is doing business with whom, looking at your president. Mr. Donald Trump is doing business with a network of very intransparent companies. And I think the US people, the US citizens owe to know with whom he is, is currently doing business or has done business in the past, because this might give you an idea who might be have something uh, in his backhand to put pressure on Mr. Trump. So that observation is, I think, a really nice way to transition to another one of your journalistic projects that I wanted to touch on. And it's perhaps the most recent. It also deals with the relationships between political actors and business people in ways that are not transparent. And that's the story that broke just this uh, past week, this recent story involving Austria, where my understanding is that senior officials in one of the, I'll call it right-wing populist Austrian parties, uh, were caught on secretly recorded video having a conversation with someone who purported to be uh, the relative of and the representative of a Russian oligarch in connection with exchanging favors. But maybe I should let you tell those of our listeners who are not already familiar with this real bombshell of a story what the uh, videos revealed. The videos that were leaked to um, Süddeutsche Zeitung and our um, main competitor, um, the news magazine Der Spiegel, was videos that were secretly taped in the summer 2017, that was shortly before the parliamentary elections in Austria. And they basically showed two representatives, among others the head of the FPÖ, that's the right-wing populist party in Austria, meeting a woman that pretended to be the niece of a Russian oligarch named Igor Makarov. And she pretended um, or claimed to have hundreds of millions of euros of dubious origin. She claimed, put it in this phrasing, dubious origin that she wanted to invest in Austria. And with this money, she wanted to boost uh, the FPÖ, the right-wing populist party, in the elections. And then they went through, hours after hours, what the party could do in exchange for these favors. And these things that they um, discussed, basically nearly all of them touched the issue of transparency. Because one, for example, was that Mr. Strache, that was the head of the, the party, he offered her state contracts. And he said, well, you only have to found a new company and you will get all the state contracts in regards to building autobahns, highways. And we will take all the state contracts on the, from a major company and you will get all of them, but you have to create a new company. So there we are again. I, as an uh, Austrian citizen, would like to know at this right moment now who the ultimate beneficial owners are of all companies that got state contracts in the last, uh, past 10 years. Then the other um, thing they spoke about was how to funnel donations to the party without the public to know. And they debated one channel that would basically be uh, we are an association. Mr. Strache, the head of the, the party who was sitting there in this villa in Ibiza, told this lady that there's an association run by um, three lawyers 
and it would be a possibility to donate money to this association and then there would be a back channel from this association to his party. In the end, when we broke the story, both of those politicians stepped back and now we will have new elections in fall this year. And what is striking for me is this party, those two officials, they were involved in a lot of a lot of scandals in the past. This party is notorious for right-wing talk. I would even say right-wing extremism talk. They were involved in a lot of scandals, but in the end it was a case of corruption that caused them to step back. And why is it like that? Because their party in the past always claimed that they were fighting against corruption. And I think here we see again that two politicians were held accountable for what they have said in comparison for what they have claimed in the past. So there are a lot of things about the story that I found very interesting and puzzling. Again, the story is important just in and of itself, but I'd also be interested in touching on what it shows us more, more broadly. One question, and this is not a question you can answer, but I'd be interested in your speculations, is whether what was caught on that tape is, let's say, typical or at least very widespread in these private conversations that occur between political elites and, and business elites or whether this was a real outlier or something in between, because there are likely some people, Austrians or others, who might have been disgusted by what they saw on the tape, but feel like this is what these people do all the time. These folks got caught, but all the parties are doing it. All the businesses are doing it. This is the kind of like the whole system is broken perspective. There's another perspective that says uh, this is not the way things are normally done, that these guys were really bad and it's good that we caught them, uh, but that we shouldn't think that this is normal or typical behavior. Do, do you have a sense? Again, you wouldn't know. You only have this one video, whether the kinds of things that were revealed in that video were basically just maybe an especially extreme form of the kind of mutual back scratching and backroom dealing that happens pervasively in Austrian or European or Western politics, or that what we saw there was a really kind of grotesque outlier? Well, that's a tough question. I guess I can only speculate on this. So all I'm saying is pure speculation. But I, as a citizen, I hope that this was the exception. But don't think that I'm naive. Of course, I, I do know that there have been several of those or similar cases in the past years, not only in, in Europe. There was major scandals in Latin America. I mean, we had these discussions here in the US as well about um, secret campaign financing. I think this case shows us again why it is so important that journalists and civil society hold politicians accountable for what they say and what they do. We are living in a world where I sometimes have the feeling that politicians get away with a lot of stuff where they would not have been able to get away with in the past. If I listen to or read what Mr. Trump is tweeting on a daily basis and what he's saying on a daily basis, there's so many lies that he's telling the public, uh, proven lies, and still he is in office. We have this debate about his finances, about his taxes that is ongoing since his, he started his campaign. And still, this issue is not solved yet. So on the one hand side, I'm a little bit frustrated. But on the other hand side, I do see silver lining on the horizon. Because the case in Austria shows that those investigations can have a certain impact and that the public 
is really demanding this kind of transparency. When this story broke, we saw thousands of people dancing on one of the major places in Vienna, on the Ballhausplatz, dancing and speaking about transparency. Some of them spoke about shell companies, about secret finances. So we do see that this whole issue about nominee directors, shell companies, transparency, it, we dragged it out of the expert's corner. So, sorry, you're an expert. I know that you speak about, you write about this issue already for years. And there are dozens of other scholars that have done the same thing. And journalists as well. But it was not in the center of the public debate. Now we have this thing in the center of the public debate. Now my little siblings are speaking about transparency. They're speaking about shell companies. They're speaking about the British Virgin Islands and Tortola and the role that Malta or Cyprus are playing in this whole game. And that's important. This whole thing about company beneficial ownership is not an expert's topic anymore. It is a topic where the whole or major parts of the population speak about. And that's important. I think that is one of the impacts, not only of the Panama Papers, but of investigative journalism in the past years. Of the ongoing efforts, for example, of the New York Times, of Politico, of the Washington Post, to shed more light on Trump's finances, for example. But we have to get going. We sh should not stop here. We need more. And I hope that political parties make this their topic. I do see a lot of nice words, but I do not see that many actions. When it comes to company finances, uh, company uh, transparency and beneficial ownership registries, the United States of America are, pardon me, developing world. This is not how a major industrial force like the US should act. As a citizen, a European citizen, and as a journalist, I would hope for political parties to stand up and make this their issue. To fight for more transparency, knowing that this could do harm to some of their crowd, because those major players that do finance um, political parties, both sides here in the US, will be affected. Not all of them will be happy with more transparency, but I think to bring back more accountability into politics, this would be a major step. So you'll get no argument from me, both on your general point and on how embarrassing it is that the United States, forget about public beneficial ownership registries, still doesn't even collect the most basic information. Again, I think there's, I'm cautiously optimistic that might actually change sometime soon, but, but it Fingers crossed. Be yeah, fingers crossed. Uh, I, I do want to ask you uh, one other question just about your role as a journalist, and then maybe we can conclude with some broader questions about the environment for investigative journalists working on corruption-related issues these days. The, the question that's about how you pursue your investigations as a journalist, maybe let me frame it like this. In both of the investigations we've talked about, and I know there are many others that we could have discussed, but the, the, these are the two that we've, we've talked about, you came into possession of information that is highly sensitive and uh, where you and your colleagues need to make a decision about what to make public and, and what not to make public and why. And they come up, in, I think, my perspective is somewhat different context. So in the context of the Panama Papers, you have your two point whatever terabytes of data. Some of the people who are in those files are people in whom the general public would have an interest in knowing what they're doing. But there might be a bunch of other people where the interest in understanding their finances or their legal maneuvers is, is less clear. And you mm -hmm. have 
information that came into your possession almost certainly due to a breach of lawyer-client confidentiality, although the issues are a bit complicated because lawyers also have an obligation not to facilitate illegal activity. But you have a bunch of information. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. That it's very sensitive and is supposed to be secret. Maybe some of the reasons for that secrecy are not bad reasons. It might be some legitimate reasons. In the case of the secret video in Austria, all of the information there seems to be information of significant public importance and, and to illustrate wrongdoing at the same time without asking you questions about the nature of your sources, which of course I, I can't ask and, and you can't answer. To me, as an audience member, it, it looks like a setup. It looks like this was a deliberate attempt to, if it were a law enforcement context, we would say a trap. If this were an undercover law enforcement investigation, I think the video, at least in, in a jurisdiction like the U.S., would probably be unusable because the person purporting to be the Russian oligarch's relative is is, is trying mm-hmm. to get these people to, to agree to do something unlawful. So I can only imagine as a journalist, when you come into possession of this, especially, and again, I won't ask about the particulars of this case, you might wonder, well, why do I have this? Is there some hidden agenda in whoever wants to get this information out? So you see what the kinds of things that I'm getting at. Mm-hmm. So as a journalist who has the interest in transparency and in promoting uh, public discussion of issues of importance, but where there might be these concerns about maybe legitimate privacy interests or concerns about where you're getting this information, why someone wants it in the public interest, how do you think through those issues? How do you discuss them with your colleagues? Trust me, this is something we don't take those decisions lightly. This is something we... In the case of the Panama Papers, we discussed it over a period of several months. In the case of the videos, the Ibiza videos, we discussed it days and nights with my editors-in-chief, with our lawyers, with colleagues, because, of course, there is a point. This is sensitive private information. But as different those cases are, the Panama Papers and the Ibiza videos, in the end, it all comes down on the case of public interest. We have to make a decision based on our experience, based on our knowledge, based on our legal consultants, where we do see public interest. In the case of the Panama Papers, we did not publish the whole 2.6 terabyte for several reasons. One was the protection of our source, but the other was that there's a lot of private information out there. I learned a lot of, about husbands. I'm speaking about husband because it's always, um, or in most cases, it was the male part uh, of a partnership who are cheating on their partner and trying to set up secretive company structure to finance their secret lover. So this is information that might be interesting from a voyeuristic point of view, but it's not interesting um, from a public interest standpoint. That's why we did not publish this information. The same comes or the same happened when it comes to the Ibiza videos. We have several hours of secretly taped videos and secretly taped uh, conversations, but we published only several minutes, because those were the minutes where we do see parts in this conversation that were of high public interest. When it comes to basically two politicians offering, in my opinion, corrupt practices in exchange for um, campaign support. Those were the parts that we were we reported on, and those were the parts that we published um, on our webpage. We did not publish private conversations. In this several hour long conversation, there was parts in there when they basically talked about rumors about escapades of other high-ranking politicians in Austria. When they spoke about their private theories of the next economic crash and the role of Bitcoin and gold, 
when they talked about um, friends and foes, this was private in my, and this should stay private. This is not business of the public. Um, we did make our decision based on the public interest. We published in the case of the Panama Papers, as well as the Paradise Papers, as well as the Ibiza videos now, only what is in the public interest. Of course, this puts a huge burden on us as journalists. I don't want to claim that we are always making the right decision, but I guess that in most parts, based on our experience, we did make the right decision. If we learn that we made a wrong decision, we would then basically um, take down several documents of the internet, but we have not seen any case where we were uh, forced or obliged to do so yet. And this is one of the major differences between traditional investigative journalists and outfits like WikiLeaks, for example, that really do just dump information to the public domain. Yeah, as much as I, don't get me wrong, I think WikiLeaks has done a good job in the past by educating investigative journalists about, for example, encryption. But I'm not a big fan, um, as much as I'm a big fan of transparency, I'm not a big fan of data dumps. First of all, um, there's private information in there. WikiLeaks in the past has published information that had the potential to do harm to individuals mentioned in there. And on the other hand side, I do see that hunger for more transparency, but I don't see a use in putting out 2.6 terabyte of the Panama Papers out there because it is very hard to understand the data. I think it's our job as journalists to put this data in context, not only publishing it, but describing the context. And also that is very important for me giving those individuals that are mentioned in there in the context of potentially legal or illegitimate activities, giving them the right to comment. We, on all those cases, we send out long letters or emails to those individuals that we mentioned in our reporting, giving them the chance to comment on our allegations, and we publish those comments. Because I think it is very important to give them the opportunity to give a statement to explain themselves. Without those explanations, I think it would be unfair to simply publish those documents. So it's one other topic that I want to cover before we wrap up, and maybe let me get into it by uh, noting that one of the things in that story coming out of Austria that was so disturbing is that it was not simply that politicians were offering or suggesting they would provide favors to a private entity in exchange for campaign donations or other kinds of payments, the deal, at least part of the deal, specifically had to do with the takeover of a media outlet. There was a discussion that the alleged Russian oligarch would purchase one of the leading newspapers in Austria and make it a mouthpiece for the uh, political party in question to help them win the elections. The leaders of that party in those videos spoke very favorably, more broadly, about what Viktor Orban had done in Hungary and getting basically all of the major media outlets under either the direct control of the government or by nominally private interests, but those who were very closely affiliated with and allied with the Orban regime. So there's this real concern about the media environment. So we're seeing in places like Europe and elsewhere attempts to, to take over the media, to tame it, to make it friendlier. In the United States, you discussed our president earlier, uh, he has attacked the media in very strong terms, called journalists enemies of the state, uh, denounced any unfavorable coverage as, as fake news, and, and so forth. So there's a sense that we're living, on the one hand, in 
in some ways almost like a, a new golden age of investigative journalism, given the work that not only you and your team, but people all over the world have been doing in unearthing and publicizing all sorts of information that we didn't have before. But on the other hand, an age that seems where journalism is very much under threat. And for those of us who study corruption or are concerned about corruption, this is obviously a, a big worry. It's a big worry for many reasons, but there's some uh, quite convincing research, including some done by one of my collaborators on this podcast project, Christopher Stark, and some of his co-authors on the importance of a free press for the fight against corruption. So I'd be interested in getting your perspective. Let me ask the question both at a personal level and at a general level. At the personal level, whether you have felt any uh, backlash, if you've been threatened directly or indirectly, if you feel like the new environment that we're in where we're seeing rising waves of populism, especially, though not exclusively, of the right-wing variety, if you felt individually as a journalist that you're under siege or even under threat. And then to put the question more generally, what you think the main threats are to the kind of independent investigative journalism that you and your colleagues do today, and what, if anything, can be done to counter those threats? First of all, it's frustrating to speak or having to speak about these issues. Let's put it frankly, we're having to speak about something I at least took for granted. That's press freedom, because I think press freedom is an important pillar of every democracy. But now it was already under siege in other countries, in autocratic countries, in dictatorships. But now we are speaking about or have to speak about press freedom and democracies. It's press freedom in Europe, but as well as the United States. And that's a frightening development. In the past three years, two of my colleagues have been killed. And those was not the colleagues that worked in Latin America and Africa or Russia, but it was colleagues working in Europe. My colleague Daphne Caruana Galizia was blown up by a car bomb. My colleague Jan Kuciak uh, in Slovakia was shot dead. And both of them, they were not part of the core team of the Panama Papers, but they worked on the aftermath and fallout. And this is frightening because those was um, killings of journalists in European Union countries. So we as investigative journalists live in uh, dangerous environments now. We work in those dangerous environments and the problem is, of course, this has a chilling effect. If you ask young journalists, students, for example, they all want to become, or many of them want to become investigative journalists. That's fantastic. But on the other hand side, if you speak with them about the threats, about the money, and that's not much that you earn in journalism, and then put it in balance, many of them basically opt out. They don't want to risk their life for not that much money. You could earn by far more money being a professor like you, going and, uh, into working for consultancy firms, for law firms or stuff like that. But as a journalist, you don't earn that much money. But I think it is important um, to have journalists. I think we are one part or an important part in democracy that holds the powerful accountable. What everyone can do to support investigative journalism is basically subscribe, in my opinion. Subscribe. Subscribe to your local newspaper, to major newspapers like the New York Times, the Washington Post here in the US. We need financing. I think it is important to pay tribute to this important pillar of democracy by paying for it. We are, at least in Europe, we were getting used to getting our news for free on web pages. In the past, even of my newspaper, you could read everything for free. But journalism doesn't come for free. It does cost. Investigations like the Panama Papers do cost a hell lot of money. Um, we needed new computers. We needed translators. We needed new staff. Um, but I think it's worth it. 
this is our job, this is our duty, and this is our contribution for, that may sound pathetic, but, but for a better world. And I think everyone can do his, his or her little part um, to support us. And as you mentioned the phrase fake news, this is something that really annoys me when I hear highly educated colleagues, individuals, even friends, using this term. Because the term fake news in, is nothing else than a term, basically, in my opinion, created by Mr. Trump to deal with critical reporting. I think we should not use this term anymore. This is a, a propaganda term, in my opinion. Um, of course, journalists make mistakes, and we should learn, and I think we have learned, to deal more transparent with mistakes we have done in the past and we are still doing because we're humans and humans are making mistakes. But uh, f using this phrase, fake news, you basically make the ground for people who then, in the end, do harm um, to journalists. I don't want to claim that... Um, Mr. Trump is doing harm to journalists personally. He is not physically attacking journalists. But by calling us enemy of the people, there is people out there who listen to him, who believe in him, and who then go into uh, media houses and basically, in the worst case, kill journalists. That's a, that's a fairly dark and uh, depressing note on which to end. So maybe before we wrap, let me give you the opportunity to say one more thing, maybe picking up on a theme you talked about before. And I think it, it's really important. I'm, I'm glad that you're speaking uh, with such passion about the important work investigative journalists do, because from my perspective, look, I'm, I'm a commentator. I'm an, I'm an academic, a researcher. I'm not in the trenches. I'm not at the front lines. But from what I've seen, from what I've read, in case after case after case, we know about corruption and major corruption scandals because of the work of investigative journalists, whether it's something like the Panama Papers that deals with financial secrecy, whether it's the major expose that journalists from the New York Times did regarding uh, Walmart's bribery activities in, in places like Mexico, whether it's journalists, often we don't even know their names, in, very, in small jurisdictions exposing illegal logging uh, or illegal mining activities. It's, it's hugely, hugely important. And as you say, investigative journalists doing this work are under threat. Uh, they don't get paid uh, an amount of money that's nearly commensurate with the social value that they add. An economist would say, and using the jargon, there are huge positive externalities associated with investigative journalists, journalism that the journalists themselves don't absorb. So what is it about the job that you love and keeps you going despite all of these difficulties. If you're being attacked by senior politicians or saying your stories are fake news, you're not getting paid nearly enough to give the amount of work that you do and how, how hard it is. But what's great about it? What what do you love about your job? Well, journalism is an amazing job because you you can research whatever you want. <laughs> so that's the, 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 the nice part of it. There's so many aspects you can touch in this um, job. You can meet so many nice and also bad people. But I think in the end, and that's very personal, but it gives you a good feeling if you hold one after another accountable. If you can show that they will not get away with their bad activities. Um, and if they get away once, they will not get a, uh, away twice. So that's, for me, if I do investigations, there investigation, there are sometimes leads that I, I'm not able to follow thoroughly. Or there's a missing piece of the puzzle that I can't find, for example, in the Panama Papers. But the past is proven. You simply have to, to put this stuff aside and you have to wait. 
and there will be a point in time when you find the missing piece of the puzzle when you uh, of the puzzle and then being able to publish such a such a story that shows you that it is worth keeping on digging to give you one example my first story on corruption was in the year 2013 that was an investigation called offshore leaks and at that point in time we stumbled across one company that was called regula and it was basically a company in connection with deutsche bank and at that point in time i was not an expert enough i only had this gut feeling something is wrong with with this company something smells and it smells like hell but i couldn't tell you how so we simply put this company in like one sentence in our reporting. We did not focus on it, we simply mentioned it. And some month ago, now, five years later, Deutsche Bank was raided in Germany. And we later learned it was raided because of a company called Regula. Because investigators picked up this only this one sentence in our reporting and took it from there. They searched, they digged, and they found um, hints, or they would call it proof, for illegal activities and that is this little cases that encourage me to go to work every day to stay up long every night and click through data that we receive go through uh, registries search for names that pop up in in, in data that were leaked to, to me because there's always this gut feeling that tells you there's something hidden and this is what keeps me going this ability to tell the public something that powerful and rich people all around the world want to keep hidden and they want to keep to keep it hidden for a huge price because i think in all our daily li- lives we see the price we pay if universities like this one harvard i mean it's highly expensive to study here if you go to a hospital here in the us the price is sorry there i mean that's not fair if you that you have to pay so much money to basically stay healthy if you go to childcare to see how much childcare costs this is all due to the fact that there's crooks and criminals out there who are um, plundering our economies and plundering whole continents and i think this is my little piece and my little part and contribution that i can do to fight for a better and i think fairer world well, thank you very much. I can speak, I know for myself, and I'm sure for many of our listeners, maybe all of them, when I say that we are grateful for the work that you do, not only you, but your colleagues, investigative journalists all around the world, including in some very dangerous places, and some places that are dangerous even if we don't think they really ought to be. So thank you very much for your time. I know you're extremely busy with all the work that you're doing. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, My guest today on Kickback has been Frederick Obermeyer, and we look forward to seeing many more of your stories uh, coming out in the future, and uh, we hope that you'll tune in from time to time to hear what we're up to over on the set. I will definitely do. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.